The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, we look at the economy. Of course, before COVID-19, it's fair to say Australia's economy was the global poster child for continuous growth, 28 years without a recession. We were able to stare down the Asian economic collapse. The Australian economy is strengthening and is stronger than any in the developed world. Despite all of the global turbulence, our economy and our people have shown themselves to be resilient. There are some clowns out there that are talking about recession. They've been proven to be looking foolish. Stronger economic growth, despite the downturn in the mining construction boom. Then came the hits. First, that summer of devastating bushfires. It already meant the economy was battered when the pandemic hit. We are in the midst of a bushfire crisis tonight. At least 17 lives and more than a thousand homes have been lost. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded. The combination of closed borders, closed businesses and of course social distancing rules made recession inevitable. But the scale of it was unprecedented. More than one million Australians out of work and you'll remember all those queues out the front of Centrelink. And an economy that was shrinking faster than ever before. Our record run of 28 consecutive years of economic growth has now officially come to an end. Cause a once in a century pandemic. The effect a COVID-19 induced recession. To put that in context, the global financial crisis hit the world economy really, really hard. This would be 40 times worse. As the scale of the challenge dawned, the government's response was swift. It was comprehensive, but it was also very costly. This package over the course of the budget and the forward estimates uh, will inject some $17.629 billion into the Australian economy. The package of measures combined with those we've already announced sums to some $189 billion around 10% of the size of our economy. The Morrison government has deployed $289 billion in fiscal and balance sheet support. But we have to say it was also effective. Even with Victoria's second wave, Australia is navigating through the pandemic in better shape than most countries. But that doesn't mean we haven't still inherited carnage. As we move from dealing with the health crisis into managing the economic one, the question is, so now what? It's a big topic and it requires some big thinkers. I can think of no bigger a thinker on this than award-winning author and journalist George Megalogenis, who's been covering Australia's political and economic fortunes for the past 30 years. Uh, George, welcome. Good to have you with us, of course. Thank you, Waleed. And it's not just the two of us, George. We're joined today by a man that I, I think listeners might know best actually for his comedy, but I, I think that comes second to the economics degree that he brandishes today as he speaks to us. Because the truth is, he's just as passionate about a bottom line as he is a punchline. His name is Luke McGregor. Luke, did you like my little punchline there? Was that good? Or? Oh, well, that was a beautiful intro. And, and, and well worth the economics degree I got um, a long time ago, uh, just for that moment. Just for, just for that? <laughs> I, do, yeah. I do feel like 
I think you will strike many people listening to this as as an unconventional choice. So I think it's important to establish just the extent of your passion for economics. And I'm minded of something that happened, I think it was a few months ago, probably three months ago, as we were entering a big conversation about debt and deficit and the coalition government was moving from saying debt and deficit were really bad, sort of slowly towards the opposite position. And I think it was around that time your economic juices got flowing. I need you just to admit, what did you do? How did you try to engage with this issue? Come on, be honest. I <laughs> I decided to ring the Reserve Bank directly <laughs> and uh, chat to one of their economists about the current situation and uh, basically asked the question, can Australia run out of money? Good news, no. <laughs> so this is predicated on the idea that we talk about having a lot of debt, but actually we also print the money. So what does that debt mean in that context? Yeah, I just I never understood why deficits were viewed as bad and surpluses were viewed as good because it sort of makes you think that Australia is like a household where you know if we borrow money we have to pay it back. Whereas you can just imagine that if you had a money printer, you wouldn't really be worried. One of your concerns wouldn't be debt. Right. <laughs> okay. You know, I guess if the printer broke, maybe, but otherwise you're, you're going to be you're going to be okay paying off your credit card if you've got an actual machine that prints money. Yes. Unless you keep doing it forever, in which case inflation goes nuts. But yes, it's a different situation, right? Well, it doesn't though, because let's say hypothetically you print money, right? And then you just take that money and you throw it in the ocean. Okay. No one spends it. So in order for uh, inflation to occur from creating currency or making Australian dollars out of thin air, that money has to be spent on something. And then it has to be spent on something to such a degree that it overwhelms supply. So inflation is always a supply side issue. As long as the economy can meet the demand for goods and services, there's never going to be inflation. So printing money doesn't cause inflation. Overwhelming supply causes inflation. Right. I like it. George, how often have you called the Reserve Bank? Uh, more often than I care to recall, actually. <laughs> they're, actually they're actually pretty friendly. Huh? <laughs> good. They are very good, actually. Uh, if you think about all the institutions that have been so thoroughly compromised by politics over the last 10 or 20 years, from government departments through to agencies and occasionally national broadcasters and the like, um, the Reserve Bank is about the only institution that maintains that separation that ideal separation of power you want from politics they run their own race right. so uh it, not a bad not a bad little outfit but it is a difficult time for them now because if we take one step back to 2008 when the global financial crisis struck the global economy has been through one of its most difficult periods in recent years, starting with the subprime crisis in the United States, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the global financial crisis and the global recession. This resilience has seen us experience 20 years of continuous economic growth and it saw us stare down the global financial crisis to emerge as virtually the only developed economy to avoid recession. They had all weapons aimed at the economy. They had interest rates at elevated levels so they could cut them quickly. And those interest rate cuts combined with Kevin Rudd's cash splashes, which were recommended to him by the then uh, Treasury Secretary Ken Henry, who said go early, go hard, go households. The combination of very rapid cut in interest rates and all that money that was chucked at us to go spending as an act of patriotic duty Christmas 2008 kept us out of a recession that swallowed up pretty much every other developed rich nation. Uh, this time around, they don't have any shots left in the locker. 
No, the interest rates are already basically zero. Unfortunately, even though I say that they're independent of politics, it's because politics hasn't been doing anything for the last 10 years. Uh, fiscal policy, which is essentially the government using uh, its taxing and spending powers to, uh, to shape and direct the economy, had gone on a very, very long holiday, partly because coalition got wound up with this idea that they needed to deliver a surplus one year to prove that all the things they'd said about Rudd and Gillard and Swan and co were true and worthy of honouring all those campaigns with a, with a surplus, whichever year you're going to get it. The Reserve Bank had to keep cutting interest rates 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th year of uninterrupted growth because fiscal policy wasn't doing its job of supporting the economy. So this is why we've ended yeah, this is why we've ended up where we've ended up. Yeah, it was it was this weird dance, wasn't it? We could talk about sort of global monetary policy settings and we could talk about the deficits in the US and the in the equivalent surplus in China in terms of global trade. But Australia's situation in 2008 was world's best because we had buffers to deploy in the event of a crisis. This time around we didn't. And one of the reasons we didn't was the Commonwealth had been, well, had been absent from the field. Reserve Bank had done too much work in years when it shouldn't really have been touching interest rates. And in fact, interest rates, interest rates today uh, in Australia and globally are probably the lowest level since the bubonic plague, which is not a bad segue to where we are. Yeah, well, fittingly. <laughs> Even last year, Australia's interest rate was um, around 1.6%, and the Reserve Bank's target is between 2 and 3%. Yep. But we should say too that um, Wayne Swan won the Euro Money Award for what is it? World's best treasurer. I can tell you it's world's best treasurer because he has a framed uh, front page, I think, of the Australian <laughs> uh, with that headline behind him. And every time we interview him on the project, it's there. <laughs> he makes sure that we can see. I th- I think because of the actions of the Reserve Bank, like it's enabled small government in a way. Yeah. And I think this crisis has shown how that you can't rely on the market to provide everything. It's just, it just doesn't work. Yeah. There's been this really weird standoff, hasn't there, where the Reserve Bank has basically been saying, please stimulate, stimulate, and we'll cut interest rates because that's our bit, but can you please stimulate? And the government said, oh, thank you for cutting interest rates. We won't stimulate. And then we've kind of ended up in this weird situation. Well, this is, this is what I talked to them about. My first question to the Reserve Bank was, if you... Because the government allots a certain amount of money to Medicare every year, is there a hypothetical limit where if enough people took the Medicare rebate, Medicare would run out of money? Mm -hmm. And the Reserve Bank said, no, we'd never bounce a government payment. And so I asked them, then why is the government um, or why is the Reserve Bank even saying there's no such thing as a free lunch when you are creating currency to fund the government surplus? So they're buying government bonds using money they've issued themselves to themselves. Mm. So why would the government ever have to pay it back? Because the government... The Reserve Bank is the government's bank, so it just doesn't make it's just changing numbers on the screen. And they were they were talking about how you know it's really important that there's an independent body that monitors government spending. So because you know obviously politicians want to stay in power, and so they could say we'll give everyone one hundred thousand dollars in their bank account if you elect us again. So the Reserve Bank wants to make sure that the government spending is moderated or or um, targeted. Targeted, yeah. But the the problem that's created, I think, is that. The government's treating Australia like a household and it's sort of not using one of the powers it has, which is that it can spend money without, and it's not a, it doesn't create a, a debt that has to be repaid, which, which I think is problematic because it takes away from the real issue, um, which you said earlier, Waleed, is that the real issue of government spending is that it shouldn't cause inflation. Mm. There is no need for Australia to be in surplus. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. All it's showing is government is spending more money than it's pulling out of the economy 
it's it's not a, it's not like us when we've got a debt that we have to pay back. The government doesn't have to pay money back to the Reserve Bank. There's no shed with a bunch of taxpayer money in it. The Reserve Bank's not going to reclaim the government's house, is what you're saying. No, you, you, the government we can't we can't be kicked out of Australia because our mortgage fails. You know, the Reserve <laughs> Bank can't come in and say you guys have got all got to move out. You know, we're going to have to foreclose it. It just doesn't make any sense. Can we just zoom out and go really big picture for a second? Because I, I think it's worth taking stock when we think about the impact of COVID nineteen on the economy. But I wonder if it's made really clear to us in a way that we perhaps didn't understand quite viscerally enough just how deeply globalised our economy is and how deeply reliant we are on the world economy. George, I might start with you on that. Just how deeply enmeshed in globalisation have we been revealed to be here? So the way to think about this is if Australia has the world's best health response, which arguably we'd be in the top half dozen. So given that, you would think Australia would be pretty well placed for recovery. But the problem is, having closed your international border, and Wally, this is the thing you're alluding to, whilst the virus is burning around the rest of the world, it takes from us the very thing that's defined our success over the 28 years of uninterrupted growth, which is overseas migration. And the single biggest driver of growth for the last 10 of those 28 years, and I tend to divide that sort of 28-year growth run into three distinct phases. The first phase, after the deep recession of the early 1990s, was that big productivity boost that we got from all those economic reforms in the 80s and 90s. Well, i just give you a few comments on the national accounts. The first thing to say is that the accounts do show that Australia is in a recession. The most important thing about that is this is a recession that Australia had to have. You know, at a terrible price of elevated unemployment, close to a million people were out of work by 1993 and into sort of 98, 99, we still had unemployment rates around 7 and 8%. But that first phase of growth, economists would give it a big tick for in terms of productivity. We were actually making things which we sold to the rest of the world. Phase two, which sort of wiped out the 90s in a way in terms of the sort of complexity of our economy and sort of dialed it back to almost the 19th century, was the mining boom. The mining boom shifted a lot of power to WA and to Queensland at the expense of especially Sydney. But phase three, which is the phase since the global financial crisis, has been driven by skilled migration. Australia's population is set to reach another milestone. The number of people living here will hit 25 million. And 62% was the result of net migration. Currently, our country is growing at more than twice the rate of America, the United Kingdom, and would you believe, China. Over the last 10 or 15 years, it's quite a simple sum. Two-thirds of Australia's population growth has come from overseas and one-third has come from net natural increase. And the boom cities for migration have been first Melbourne and then Sydney. This is the last phase. Close the borders, even though you've, you've suppressed or almost eliminated a virus. If you can't let anybody else in from overseas, what starts happening to Australia? It starts to age and it ages really rapidly. This is the problem we confront. You can sort of cut and dice it in terms of individual sectors, overseas, you know, international education, overseas tourism. But the fundamental issue now for us looking the next year or two while the virus burns around the globe is that we can't fill some of the skilled uh, vacancies that will open up in the labour market because we can't import people who are ready-made for those jobs. Universities, our unis are not going to be able to produce workers in sort of tech, in sort of the high-end skills, medical, and in nursing and in teaching to be able to fill some of those job vacancies. So I wouldn't say we were stuffed, but we we're in a very difficult position. This is what I find interesting. We're having a massive argument 
in Australia at the moment about internal borders. And Scott Morrison is constantly, and Josh Frydenberg as well, constantly attacking premiers for keeping their borders up in various forms, whether it's a hard border or a quarantine, whatever it is. What's been happening in Victoria has been like watching a car crash in motion. You impose a border, you can't help but cause problems. I will not be bullied, nor will I be intimidated. Order. By the Prime Minister of this country. Australia was not meant to be closed. Australia was meant to be open, Mr Speaker. It does ignore that our economy simply cannot return to anything like the form that it was until the international borders yep. open. Do we just have to accept that our economy simply cannot recover in the way that we might like to imagine while that international border is shut? I think the government right now is, is relying too much on the fact that a vaccine will be really effective, that we can return to some sort of normal in the nearish future. We've seen a lot of sort of tax cuts or, you know, encouraging businesses to hire, but um, this sort of focus on supply side economics, I think, is just a mistake. So what we should clarify by supply side, what we basically mean is giving tax cuts to people and hoping they spend it and that businesses will create jobs through investment rather than by putting money where consumers will automatically spend it and thus generate demand. Yeah, it's that idea that sort of, you know, look after the supply and the demand will take care of itself. Here's a great example. Basically, if you if you ran a sandwich shop and you wanted to sell more sandwiches, you wouldn't do that by making more sandwiches. You know, you need to increase the demand for sandwiches mm. and you do that by, say, giving people money to buy sandwiches. Tax cuts, you could argue, increase the demand for goods and services, but tax cuts are only good if people are earning money, whereas right now a lot of people aren't earning money anymore. I just feel like the entire focus of the government has been on assuming the economy is going to get back to where it was and to making sure it's sort of supercharged when it does. But I just don't think that's going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen for a while. And in the meantime, you know, people need direct support. Like even the Reserve Bank has said we have sufficient money to pay for JobKeeper, and yet it's still, for some reason, getting pulled back. Luke, I just wonder, and it's written all the way through the budget papers, the assumption they are making is that the private sector will obviously take over at some point, and the assumption, I think, coincides in the budget papers with the vaccine. That's as much ideology and philosophy as it is evidence. They don't want the responsibility for the recovery. Having gone to a record deficit, and they'd already doubled the debt uh, before COVID hit, they don't want the responsibility for holding the hand of the economy through what they think will be a, a normal recovery. You're right about them expecting things to go back to normal, and it probably been an unrealistic assumption. But don't underestimate how much they believe in their view of the market. And you can almost see the day of Albanese's budget, Anthony Albanese's budget reply, he and his staff have obviously looked through the documents and said, hang on a minute, these guys have done nothing on aged care, childcare, public housing, and we could probably outbid them on infrastructure as well. So the Labor side ended up thinking, well, recovery is about government services, it's about safety net. Coalition has got a, a private sector-led recovery. In a weird way, as a journalist, I'm pleased that we have that choice, but as an economist, I think the uh, betting the house on a private sector recovery, and I probably agree with you with this on Luke, is that um, this is not what the evidence is telling me at the moment. I'm interested in whether or not you think the history of not just recessions, but deep recessions, depressions, pandemics, if you, if you like, if you want to get your pandemic hat on, um, do they tell you that you can private sector your way out of this or do they tell you that it's just big government spending ultimately that gets you through it 
the budget that was announced the other week is virtually the budget that Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, would have delivered if he'd been allowed to deliver a single budget during the 1930s. That's what a Keynesian budget would have looked like in the middle of the Depression. That is basically to bet the house on the government. No one else can go to work anyway. Because what, what, what have we looked at? Two-thirds of the economy have been shut down since March. The national economy in Australia and every economy around the world is in the equivalent of some form of, on some form of sick leave. So at that point, somebody else has to pay. If you can't go to work, you can't earn, and if you can't earn, you can't pay your bills. So somebody else has to cover that loss. What the coalition are trying to do is then assume that this depression-like episode, which is obviously driven by a pandemic, suddenly ends next year and you can return to normal. Now, what we've, what we've found in even previous recessions is you get a shadow from that recession, which is not everyone can go back to work the next day, there is a form of scarring. And part of the scarring is the difficulty of somebody to rehire somebody who has been out of work. It's not written on your face, I am unemployed, do not hire me. But it does become very difficult to get somebody back into work if they've been out for a little while. And all the evidence from the 90s recession is that the blokes, and they were blokes during that recession, pretty much all the blokes over the age of 50 never worked another hour in their life. So we can assume that some of this, some of this is going to happen regardless coming out of this recession. So Betting the house on a private sector recovery, other things being equal will lead to a higher unemployment rate than would otherwise be the case. I think the Liberal government have got a really tricky situation here where they are even being told by the Reserve Bank they need to spend. But, you know, they've been sort of touting this position of the sort of surplus um, party for so long that, you know, it's really hard for them to turn on a dime and say, listen, deficits actually don't matter. Well, except they have kind of embraced the deficit thing, haven't they? I mean, by delivering a record deficit and by saying, we're not going to worry about the deficit until we get unemployment below 6%, things like that. Like, these are things they would never have said before. I think this small government approach is really, even even though I'm sort of, I'm mostly for it, I really think we're running up against the limits of it here. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried the government's, unless they change their tax soon, it's going to hurt us. So this is really interesting to me, George. So Luke's clearly like nailed his colours to the mask there on the question of debt. Yeah, he's probably he's probably a little to the left of me on the topic, but not on the economics of the moment. Right. I think we're in agreement on one point, but on the other point, which is the philosophical point, I'd probably diverge from. I don't think he could continue to print money to buy full employment. I think there are other ways. So George, let's dig into that point. Do we want to tease it out? It's probably a good one to tease out now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's do it. Yeah, that's so. Let let's let's say people say I don't think it's impossible to print money. Now, just just to clarify, is your stance on that because if you continually print money, prices go to control or the money loses its value? My stance is that global markets are willing to lend to us at record low interest rates. There's no point to shoot for zero when they're prepared to pay us to invest on our own behalf. Okay, so one option is the government can sell bonds to China. Let's say. So the money is going overseas, they're selling bonds to China, and then they slowly pay China back an interest rate on that. Or they print the money and they use that as spending. Can you tell me what the difference is between selling it to China or printing the money to, to fund the deficit? Okay, so we are still a net, remember, first, almost first principle of the Australian economic history, we're a net capital importer. We're always borrowing from somewhere. I know you're saying print, but we're always borrowing from somewhere and we're always looking for international investment to grow this place. And that's because population is small, our resource base is, is monumental, and our aspiration for living standards are always epic. At the moment, the rest of the world, because it's... Um, because we can borrow money cheaply. We can print it for zero, but we can borrow it cheaply. The rest of the world is betting that we are going to continue growing. 
that you know our prospects in the long run are better than Japan's or better than Europe's or better than the United States, relatively speaking. You're saying that there's this faith in our currency so people are happy to buy bonds from us yep. in that we were able to pay our debts back? They're willing to lend and invest in us. But, and this is, this is the point I make by reference to Australian economic history, there have been a couple of episodes in the past, in the 1890s and again in the 1930s, and then briefly in the 70s and into the 80s, where the rest of the world decided we were a sport little rich country uh, that had got ahead of ourselves and we got hammered. Now, there are a number of ways we can get hammered and we can get hammered on climate change, we can get hammered on suddenly everybody around the world deciding that we're living beyond their means. Now, if I was Philip Lowe, I wouldn't want to be the first Reserve Bank governor to say I'm printing, I'm printing money. I'd be quite comfortable and I'd be advising governments. One of the reasons why I advise governments not to print money is I still want to maintain some discipline or some control over them because it doesn't matter which side of politics you've got. If you move to a situation of, of printing money, you'll just get a whole lot of bridges to nowhere built from the National Party. And a whole lot of public hospitals, you know, in Labor electorates built, whatever it is Labor people do. I just want to drill us down, sorry, guys. I, I, I get that this is the world and we're, we're human beings and, you know, human beings can uh, overspend, et cetera, et cetera. But can we just drill it down to one fundamental thing, okay? Let's just say you're George and you've got George Island, okay? And you've got your island currency called George Bucks and um, no one on your island has any George Bucks. You have to create the George Bucks to give it to them and then you want those people to spend George Bucks. You don't want them to spend US dollars on your money. You want them to spend George Bucks. So how do you give them George Bucks? Well, you tax them. And so if they want to live on your island, they want to change goods and services, they have to pay you tax. So through taxation, you're encouraging them to use the currency of the island because it's illegal for them not to pay taxes as well as they go to jail on your island, okay? Now, um, you want to build a hospital on that island, so you need to create more George Bucks in order to pay, you're the government, you need to create more George Bucks to pay someone to build a hospital. So how do you do that? So let's say you can sell a government bond. So you sell that government bond to China, China buys government bonds, um, the George Bucks, which creates a bunch of George Bucks for you. And then over time, you slowly pay China back the George Bucks. Alternatively, you can print the George Bucks or you can create the George Bucks and then send them to the economy. The amount of spending is identical. The only difference is you have to send some George dollars to China because you are in debt to them because of their bonds. How do you pay them back? By using George Bucks, you have control of George Bucks, you can print George Bucks. What I'm trying to say is there is a misunderstanding of people between what creating currency is and printing money. Like a lot of people um, in economics don't like to call it printing money because money implies a, you know, there's a there's a there's an equivalent transaction that has to take place. There's a I, I take money, someone loses money. Um, I give money, I lose money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we think of it as finite. Yeah. Whereas it's, it's not. Creating currency and, and having unlimited Australian dollars is different. The government can hypothetically spend unlimited currency. You could ring the Reserve Bank as soon as you finish listening to this podcast and ask them, and it is within our potential to spend unlimited Australian dollars. We don't do that in part because of the current philosophies of government in power, but there are other countries around the world that are doing this. Australia is doing this. We're just not acknowledging that we're doing this. There is no need for us to send money overseas or to, to sell bonds to the public, to the private sector. The Reserve Bank right now is buying government bonds with money it's issued to itself to spend money. What's important is the government doesn't overspend that money and that the Reserve Bank monitors the amount of government spending to control the inflation rate and make sure we're not overheating the economy, which the Reserve Bank has always done. But there is no, it doesn't matter where that money comes from. So, George, would it, would it be fair to say, if I can try to summarise this, 
it's not so much that you and Luke have a pure economic theory disagreement here. It's that where Luke said what's important is you don't overspend the money. What you're saying is politics means that it is certain we would overspend the money. Absolutely. That's actually a pretty good summary. I get um, we could we could print the bucks if we wanted to, but I think I would argue that we don't need to. And I wouldn't, whilst there may not be any distinction sort of behind the scenes, it's not something I'd necessarily want to broadcast to the rest of the world. I'd be quite happy to tell the rest of the world, look, lend to us at 0.7% at bubonic plague rates of interest. I've got a bunch of stuff I want to be able to do as a, as a Commonwealth government. I want to invest in things that are going to get me a return of 5 6 7 and 8%. This road here, this railway there, this airport there, this desalination plant. I want to clean up the Barrier Reef, which will, on our, on our sort of psychic balance sheet will make us a much better place. I also want to have world-class health, education, childcare. You can do all those things at bargain basement <laughs> interest rates. And why wouldn't you? Yeah, that's probably the way I'd think about it politically. I, I guess where I disagree there, George, is this that this, we're not talking about a hypothetical scenario here. It's already happening. The government, the Reserve Bank has is already creating currency to fund the government deficit and interest rates are still at historic lows. Can the three of us at least agree that a deficit is not bad? Surplus isn't good, deficit not bad. Deficit and surplus are just they're just reactionary measures to whatever the economy is doing. They're not bad or good inherently. They're bad or good depending on what the economy is doing. So sometimes it's good to have a surplus because you want to cool the economy down. And sometimes it's good to have a deficit because you want to heat the economy up, especially in this case. Are the three of us agreed on that at least? Yeah, sure. Yep, I can agree on that. The only problem I had with that whole discussion was the idea of George Bucks. Surely the Giorgio would be a far better name for that currency. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk specifically about women because the budget that we've just seen, if it faced any sustained criticism, it was on the basis of the way it broke down in gender, that women were hardest hit by the pandemic. Recession is really different. It's hit women harder, and yet there doesn't seem to be a huge amount for women in the budget. The burden of the Morrison recession has disproportionately fallen on women. Why has the Prime Minister left women behind in this budget? How big a problem is that? Uh, and is is there still time for something to be done about it? What would that be? Yeah, so this is probably the single biggest story of the recession. Through the 70s, the mid-70s, the early 80s, and again at the start of the 1990s, overwhelmingly recessions were about men. They were about manufacturing and construction winding back, or layoffs were worn by men wearing blue collars. This recession, because of, because of the lockdown orders, has disproportionately affected women. Now, the other thing to think about through the 60s, through the 70s, 80s and 90s, men lost the majority of jobs, eight out of 10 jobs on average across those three recessions. They weren't the first to be rehired. Women continued to, to claim the jobs in the recovery because there was a big shift in the economy away from blue-collar work to pink-collar work as we sort of moved from a, from a manufacturing and construction base to a service-based economy. And also an economy uh, with a disproportionate share of professional workers, especially from the 90s onwards. And the majority of professional workers in Australia today are women, not men. Any thinking economist would look at that and say, my first priority should be to protect the victim. But a coalition government does think with the male side of its brain. I think there's sort of no argument about that. 
micro a micro recollection from the many stimulus measures that the coalition have announced uh, when they announced their belated package for the arts. Uh, remember the voter they were thinking about, the tradie that was going to hammer the nail into the stage. We're announcing $250 million of additional support into the sector, which is all about getting the show back on the road. And I think what we've come up today um, reflects, I think, a very strong response that I, I hope that will give all those in the sector, uh, particularly those who put their houses on the line to put shows on. Yeah, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Not the performer. Not the performer. Yeah, it was amazing how, how at pains the government was to stress that, hey, this involves tradies too. So, so what would it look like if they were thinking with the female side of the brain? The first thing to worry about in a recession is all this untapped talent that's sitting out there, all these people who can't work, who should be the first people you look after. Now, stimulus is a short-term measure to make sure that they can pay their bills and they continue to spend it so other people don't lose their jobs. But the more fundamental issue, if you're displacing a significant degree of your labour force, you have to figure out a way to redeploy them quickly as a government to keep your unemployment rate down. Otherwise, you're waiting years and years and years for the economy to restructure and figure out how to repurpose this unemployed worker. And we know from the previous recessions that when men lose their jobs, they don't get them back because the economy is moving in another direction anyway. So first, almost as a first principle, what are the things that the virus is telling us that are gaps in our safety net? There was obviously an issue with childcare. There's obviously an issue in the health system generally, and there's definitely an issue in aged care. Now, across those three things, you would think that you could rapidly redeploy a lot of that female labour that has been laid off to stitch together the safety net for your health response. Now, they don't have to stay in that work, but I would have thought that that was essential work. And if you've got a lot of people who aren't working at the moment and you've still got gaps in your essential services, that's where you plug them in. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we should point out first that it's um, three guys talking about women's issues. <laughs> but look, I, I, think it's, I think it's an example of where, you know, inequality existed before and a pandemic like this just widens it. Mm. You know, what we should have been doing to address the inequality in the first place, we just, you know, it just becomes even more important now just highlights further how important it is that the government needs to directly intervene um, to help people right now. Can we make it concrete then by focusing in on childcare? George, Labor's proposal seems to be more or less just universal coverage for childcare. Anyone get it? Yeah, they, it's, they, they, their policy seems just sort of reading between the lines. Their policy seems to be we fund 90, I, the taxpayer funds 90, and you pay the last 10 out of your own pocket. So in essence, it's Medicare with a co-payment. I would have simplified this. I mean, childcare in a sense, childcare is almost the wrong term. What we're discussing here is early learning and pretty much everybody else but Australia offers universal access to early learning from, from as early as two years of age for some countries in Europe. We seem to still think that kids stay at home for the first four years of their life and then go to, then do it maybe a year of kinder and then are in primary school. Most of the evidence is in terms of brain development that the first seven years of a child's life, especially those very, very early years, are the most important things for sort of plugging everything in. So there is a human, and I hate this phrase, but there is a human capital argument for making sure every kid gets the same head start. Right. So, so not a productivity thing so much as an education thing that has a productivity dividend. Would you have gone as hard as labour though? Oh, I'd go much further. I'd, I'd actually make universal access from age two. I'd give 20 hours a week from age two and I'd have the state, the federal government could fund it, but the states have to administer it as part of the school system. And irrespective of income? 
irrespective of income. Wow. There's a reason for that. If I've given that service, as I'm now thinking like a policymaker, if I've given that service to everybody, I am probably, as a tax collector, probably more inclined to hit people that don't pay their tax because I've given them something like this. And, and, and Australia's insistence on a means-based system just creates so much administrative issues, send link management, um, payouts. It, it just If you have a means-based system, I'm not saying it's completely wrong in all aspects, but a means-based system does create more admin than a, a universal system, for example, where everyone's entitled to childcare regardless of your income. Yeah, the other point is, which we sort of haven't touched on, but um, Julie Gillard faced this problem with uh, that outfit, ABC Learning. ABC Learning was the world's biggest childcare company in 2006. Yesterday it went into voluntary receivership. The receiver has made it clear that ABC childcare centres will continue to be open and providing care. A lot of that used government funds to incentivise people to consume private products in the area of childcare as with aged care created a whole lot of problems in terms of the service delivery and accountability. And in the end, the Commonwealth had to go back in and prop up that system when ABC Learning went under. Yeah, so what does that mean? Does that mean effectively government has to take over the sector? Well, in terms of universal access, government doesn't have to take over the entire sector. Government can set a universal standard and and provide that service. And then if the private sector wants to operate alongside it, over and above it, uh, with a higher set of standards, and, and if people want to pay for that, go for it. George makes an excellent point, I think, which is the importance of high-quality public schools, high-quality healthcare, high-quality childcare, public childcare, because that, if you if you want to give the market free reign, then having a competitive government-funded body in in all of those areas encourages the private sector to lift its game, because no one's going to send anyone to the private sector if the government's doing it better. Let's look to the future for a moment. We spoke a bit about globalisation and our extent of exposure to globalisation. To what extent does our response, particularly if this goes on longer and longer and longer, irrespective really of which government is in charge, involve a kind of deglobalization, where we start doing things like manufacturing that we'd kind of stopped doing? And if we decide to do that, does it work? Like, is anyone going to buy our stuff given our labor costs are so much higher and the cost of the end of product is going to be like that? Are we prepared as consumers to deal with more expensive products because they're Australian made because that's what we do now? Can you unscramble this egg and is that inevitably the direction we're heading in? I don't think you can unscramble the egg, unfortunately, because there is a chicken and egg here. Sorry to jump metaphors or entangle them. You're extending them. (laughs) Without mass migration again, we don't have the population base to even try. So that's one difficulty. But the other thing is, and this is, this is on the assumption that the virus isn't beaten and then there's another out, another pandemic a couple of years from now. And I think that's, that, that is a fair operating assumption that every government should be baking into their forecasts and their wargaming. Now, that part of it says more self-reliance, but we probably don't have the population to be able to do it. So we then have to start thinking about, and this, this does go back to the question of intervention, what parts of the economy the government has to prop up to be able to sustain, you know, cocoon Australia, isolated Australia. The other part of the story, and we haven't touched on it, but one of the big elements of globalisation in the last 20 years has been China's step up the global income ladder from about the sixth or seventh ranked economy by size, the turn of the 21st century, it was smaller than Italy in 2000, to being the second largest economy by about 2010. Now, a lot of China's engagement in the global economy seems to have hit a logical dead end from their perspective. 
about a year ago, even before the pandemic, where they started to de decouple in terms of technology. We're looking at two internets essentially in the next 10 years, a sort of China-only internet and a sort of non-China internet. We're also looking at the, at the Chinese not sending their kids out to be educated uh, overseas with or without the pandemic because they want to keep them at home. And Chinese universities are improving in quality. Yeah, and we're also looking at the Chinese, you know, just pushing a little too hard into, into countries that we're quite happy to trade with them, we're trying to set terms, their own terms, thinking that the Americans used to do this stuff, why can't we get away with it? All those things tend to lead you down a path where China itself chooses to disassociate from the global economy. And so you have almost an automatic deglobalization because of the absence or because of the retreat of the single entity that, that created, in a sense, that escalation in income that countries like Australia enjoyed before the pandemic. So that's, that's quite a complicated, that's quite a complicated equation. I probably we need to write a couple of hundred thousand words on it to, to get my thoughts straight on it. Do you know what's actually fascinating, though, about what you said there, George? Um, I don't know if you spotted this, Luke, or if I'm just going crazy, but it sounds like the conditions that would make our deglobalization possible are the same conditions that would mean we don't have to do it. So effectively, the opening of the border, the bringing in lots of skilled migration so we can build another, you know, Snow River scheme or whatever. We can't deglobalize until we've globalized. We can't afford it. Did you spot that or have I misunderstood that? Do you know the, th the thing we're running, the experiment we're running the next two years, and the budget says 150,000 more people are going to leave Australia that will turn up. And, you know, before um, the pandemic, we were receiving in net terms to 250,000 people a year from overseas, two-thirds of our population graph coming from net overseas migration. So we're running this experiment now for the next two years, deglobalisation, net emigration. So the last time we had two years in a row more people left the country than arrived was in the 30s. And we very quickly didn't want to continue that experiment. After the Second World War, what did we do? Mass migration. In a sense, our survival instinct will try and force us to think of a way to re-engage with the rest of the world, and even if the other constituent parts of the global economy are self-isolating from one another, US and China for EG. Luke, does that mean that our sort of renewed zeal for local manufacturing is a bit of a mirage? Um, so we, we, we're still tied together. So I think what you're going to see is, I think what you're going to see is countries becoming more um, diversified and um, more able to look after themselves in very essential things like food, um, water management, etc. But, you know, I mean, there's still so many goods that we buy um, that we're, nev we're just never going to manufacture here. We're never going to manufacture iPhones. Australia's never going to make its own PlayStation. <laughs> this is a great insight into the big stuff in your life, Luke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but we, we're, all, we're always going to be relying on um, the outside. Like we're all on a big rock floating in space. We're all going to be tied together in some aspects. But I, I do think there's some defence-related and security-related things that every country is going to be diversifying and where possible, manufacturing them at home. You're right, Luke, but the tricky part, and while we were sort of discussing the unemployment story earlier, that doesn't account for the people who have been laid off. So even if manufacturing, it's not even 10% of the total labour force now, manufacturing was a quarter of all jobs uh, as recently as the mid-1970s, and it's never going to get back to that point. You simply can't make enough things and sell them to enough people to be able to get manufacturing share of the labour market back up. Even if you could pull it off, you'd only be displacing male labour from other parts of the economy, say construction. The female side of the labour market is where the gaping problem is. And in a sense, globalisation is not really 
it's not the either or here. The female side of the labour market is about engaging the more productive and the better educated side of the economy that isn't disempowered at the moment because the country, unfortunately, is still run by blokes. And, and, and there are certain jobs that are never going to survive no matter whether COVID was around or not. And I, I think, you know, we just need to look at creating opportunities in other industries that aren't necessarily manufacturing. What's important is that those people are looked after and, where possible, retrained. But Australia's very lucky. We've got um, a lot of food, got a lot of natural resources, and we're you know, we're really well placed to get through this just with a little bit of, I'm sorry, I keep going back to this, a little bit of government investment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think your position on that's been made abundantly clear, Luke. All right, I think that just leaves us with uh, the watching brief. George, I'll start with you. What are you watching? What am I watching? Uh, In the short term, I'm watching those uh, unemployment numbers and when those unemployment numbers start to look like what the Treasury assumes is the COVID effective rate of unemployment. If they're creeping up to 7 and 8 and 9%, then we are almost going to have to reset this conversation and figure out how the government can do a double or nothing bet on uh, supporting the economy. Just really quick one on this. Is it more important to watch the unemployment rate or the underemployment rate? Well, at the, at the moment, what Treasury what Treasury are trying to direct you to is watching the under, underemployment rate. So the zero hours and would want to work more hours but can't. But sooner or later, that washes out in the headline unemployment rate. So the thing to watch is if that headline unemployment rate is creeping up and doesn't look like it's coming down, then we're in trouble. Luke, what are you watching? I'll be watching the inflation rate and the debt-to-GDP ratio. So people get more and more proof that government spending does not cause inflation um, as the inflation rate continues to remain below the RBA's target despite historic levels of stimulus at the moment. I'll be watching for the first issue of the Georgia. <laughs> I reckon I might get on board with that early because I think that currency is got it's as solid as Bitcoin at least. I'd live on that island. George, you seem you seem lovely and I think you'd make a good leader. <laughs> Yeah, because he's a reluctant leader too. It wasn't his even his idea. It wasn't my idea. Thank you to both of you. It's been really, really good fun. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell, along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubilant. And I spoke with Mr Jubilant not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.